Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast designed to help more people get into God's Word and get more out of the Word. I'm Ben Blakey. It's Saturday, October 2nd, 2021. Who is the most powerful person on planet Earth? Sure, that's a question we could kick around and debate. Used to be most people would just say, oh, it's the President of the United States. But it's probably somebody that has a great amount of political power over one of the greatest nations in the world. And, you know, we could debate, well, which nation has the most power? Who's the most important person there? But if we were to rewind the clock all the way into the Old Testament, I think if we would have asked that question, at one point, the answer would have been Cyrus. Now, Cyrus was a king in the Persian Empire, and he's a king that God is going to ultimately use uh, to send people back to rebuild the temple. But here is this mighty king, this powerful man, and today we're going to see hundreds of years before it happens, God is calling him out by name. And that should remind us, whoever the most powerful person is on planet Earth, whoever the most powerful people are, God, our God, the God of the Bible, is King of kings and Lord of lords. Today we read Isaiah 45 through 47, and it begins this call to Cyrus. It says, the Lord, thus says the Lord to his anointed, and that anointed there even That's where the word Messiah comes from. The word Messiah comes from this idea of anointed. And the Messiah ultimately is anointed in the offices you would think of anointing, prophet, priest, and king. But here he's talking to his anointed. David even referred to Saul as God's anointed. And he's talking about Cyrus, this king of Persia. And listen to what he says, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. So there is this this king that doesn't know the Lord. Cyrus, by all accounts, doesn't seem to be a follower of God. But here, God is calling him out by name and saying, even though you don't know me, I know you and I am sovereign over you. And he wants people to know that, verse 6, that the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So even as we think about that, that those are strong statements of the sovereignty of God. 
And we're going to see more of that. If you're a part of Compass Bible Church, Treasure Valley, we saw so much of the sovereignty of God, even in the arrest of Jesus last week. Tomorrow, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at some other passages in John 18 that really, again, show the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of God even over the political leaders of this world, even the wicked political leaders of this world. And the sovereignty of God is something that is all over Scripture. But it is something that, you know, we try to distance ourselves from, I think, sometimes, especially when bad things happen. It's like, well, how can bad things happen if God is sovereign? Well, I don't think God is trying to distance himself as much from those things as we would try to make him. Look at what he says in verse 7, where he's talking in the context again. There's no one besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Look at what he says. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So there's times where calamity happens. We're like, oh, that is. And that's why a lot of even theologians have to some extent started denying the full sovereignty of God as a way to explain just calamity in this world. Well, yeah, then God must not really be in control if calamity happens. God right here is saying, I create calamity. And so what should this do? It should inspire worship in us of the Lord, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Look at what he says in verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, right? Woe to the one who fights against the God who made him. Fighting against God is a losing battle. If you are that way today, trying to fight against God by holding on to sin, trying to fight against God by seeking your own will instead of his, trying to fight against God by rejecting the truth of the Bible or even by rejecting his sovereignty, that is not going to work out. God is the only one that is sovereign. And that's really what we see so well in these chapters today. Look at just what he says in Chapter 45, verse 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Judah, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And he is the one who has declared the truth. And look at what he says in verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Also, it's in this awesome God that there is salvation. So he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we also see that idea as we read the first eight verses of Psalm 115 today, where God is going to compare him to himself to idols and the other things that people worship. It begins with these familiar words, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Another statement of the sovereignty of God. Whenever we were tempted to ask, where's God? What's he up to? He is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases pleases. And then he compares it to the idols. The idols, they're silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but do not see. Ears, but do not hear. 
noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And our trust is not to be, obviously, in the foolishness of idols. Our our trust is not to be in money or our own resources or our own abilities. Our trust is not to be in the kings and lords of this earth. Our trust is meant to be in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Is that where your trust is this Saturday? Are you seeing out a world, even though it seems filled of chaos, there is a God who is above it all, reigning supreme, doing whatever he pleases, working all things according to the counsel of his will. God is sovereign. And so many of our problems in life, whether it's anger, anxiety, fear, manipulation, so many of those things on some level stem in our hearts from a rejection of the sovereignty of God. And we need to acknowledge and worship God for his power and for his sovereignty. Now let's move on now to Luke, where again, we see Jesus interacting with people of political authority in Luke 23, verses 13 through 25, as we see uh, Jesus now back before Pilate, he calls together the chief priests and the rulers, and he says, I find no guilt in this man, but the, the chief priests and the Jews, they will not take no for an answer. And they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And even Pilate is kind of, wait, what evil has he done? But eventually he acquiesces. He gives in. So this is a failure on on so many levels. Pilate failing to do what is just. And maybe even more, probably even more egregious for the, the leaders of the Jews, right? These were the chief priests. These were the people that should have known the law and should have recognized the Messiah when they saw him, but instead cried out, crucify him, crucify him. This is as evil as evil gets. And Pilate delivers Jesus over to their will. But that's where we know, actually, Jesus was working all things according to his own will. So that's something where even though what we see today is very dark, we have to remember Jesus was in control, working it all out And the crucifixion was his plan. And we see a little more of why that was his plan as we get to Hebrews chapter 10. And again, remember, this is a book written to Jewish people, so used to the system of sacrifices. And he's trying to explain how Jesus is superior. And he even tries to show how, hey, those sacrifices, they didn't work. Because if they worked, why did you have to keep offering them? You had to keep offering them because those sacrifices couldn't make you perfect. That's what he says really in verse one. But Christ, he has done something different. He has done something better. Look at what it says starting in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so there we see some amazing truth really condensed into some tight space here in Hebrews, where right now, God's mission is really salvation. 
And if you look around and you're like, why is God allowing all this calamity? And why hasn't he come back yet to set it all straight? Because he's waiting for more people to get saved. Because Jesus has now offered the perfect sacrifice one time for all. And he wants to give more time for people to respond to the message of that sacrifice. And then when that is done, his enemies will be made his footstool right? He will reign. So someday the the objective of this King of Kings and Lord of Lords will be to come and reign on this earth and to get rid of evil and unrighteousness. But right now he is through this sacrifice offering salvation to the world. And that's a salvation we should rejoice in. Look at what it reminds us of in verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And I hope that encourages you as you consider the sin and the guilt in your past. If your faith is in Christ, God remembers that sin no more. And there doesn't need to be a sacrifice. You don't need to do penance. No, Christ has paid for your sins in full once for all. That's good news. And so when we think about this King of Kings and Lord of Lords, He is sovereign. That should affect our perspective, but he is also merciful and he has made a way for us to be saved. And may we rejoice in that, even as we long for the day when this King of Kings and Lord of Lords will return and make everything right. Thanks for digging into God's word with me today on Revival from the Bible. For more resources, check out revivalfromthebible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to compassbible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.